Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And joining me this week, we've got uh, Tyrion and Lines. Hello, Tyrion and also Lines. Hello, Tyrion at Tyrion Wilson here. At that interlace. So uh, this week we're going to be talking about... Um, I was going to say foreign policy, but the Labour Manifesto describes it as a new internationalism. So maybe we should say we're talking about a new internationalism this week. Uh, discussing foreign policy, uh, discussing um, foreign policy from a left-wing perspective um, in a changing, ever-fluid 21st century. But yeah, primarily we're going to be talking about um, foreign policy and defence um, from, a, from a concrete military point of view, but also from a cyber point of view, which is why Lines is here, our resident cybersecurity expert. Well, of course, not the only. I, I, I should I should say that I am I am not a cybersecurity expert. What I am is someone doing a cybersecurity PhD. Uh, so I know you, you'll become stuff. an expert. Uh, I, 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 some, I, I already know quite a bit, but like I'm aware of my own limitations. Is what I'm saying. Um, I also presume but, you're probably some distance ahead of most members of the general public on cybersecurity knowledge. That is that is probably true, but I sort of and uh, both myself and Tyrion. <laughs> I think the thing is that I know enough to know how much I I don't know, um, mm. but I can probably give vaguely informed perspectives on some stuff. I definitely have opinions, which is like half of being a commentator. I understand. So I still yeah. haven't got round to installing a VPN. <laughs> That's. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have a VPN. Like, possibly but do you know that you should have a VPN? Should we have a VPN? I just, you know, I mean, maybe. I, I just like. It's someone about to hack the social review. No, that's <laughs> not going to happen. Nobody Wait, no, does. no, no. That is going to happen. We're popular. People want to hack us. We're we're uh, thought are leaders. We, are we popular? Shush. We have a line to keep. <laughs> <laughs> With the um, thought leaders of the Labour Manifesto. I, mean, yes. I don't know who, 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 who is our service. Who are we hosted with? As long as we keep it updated, it's probably fine. I don't know who does that. It's going to be okay. I presume we, we're more we, likely to be hacked via basically our very, very, very. I presume quite obvious password. I, I, I mean, uh, yes, we put that should wait. be. Oh, I just. Oh my. God. Wait, I know. Wait, I, all wait, I know is, actually, I'm not answering. I'm not asking that no. question. Well, no, all, no, I know, ask, all I know ask, is the password. Don't talk about what our password is. <laughs> See, this is how little I know about cybersecurity. <laughs> All I know is that um, our password is a. My m- password is generated by Dice. It's it's unguessable because I can. Wait, tell hang you on. Wait, well, generated by Dice. Hang on. Yeah, 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 wait, yeah. Uh, are there any hey, capitals? This is already this is already an absolute disaster. Anyway, this, this, um, so this ties in. This is security. <laughs> so, How do we need not, to generate un, not, unguessable just... passwords? No. <laughs> okay, so what are some quick tips for <laughs> cybersecurity before we move on to what we are actually I, supposed I, I, to talk I mean, about? I mean, I, I don't know. Like, well, actually, so I can talk about. Uh, I can actually go on to what we're trying to talk about, which is either interesting questions, right? Like how I, I think in the modern in today's age, we're actually pretty aware as consumers that vaguely we should be worried and i say consumers i mean like people who use services and people who use digital the whole time and pretty much we've had the message hammered into us that we should be vaguely worried about cybersecurity, but we basically have a lot of anxiety about what that means and what we should do and ah and things are very complicated right thou shalt not uh, neighbor uh, russia indeed. yes um say, say again thou shalt not neighbor russia uh yeah if you could not like you know, I, I mean, I mean, uh, Estonia are shit hot on cybersecurity, and one of the reasons they sh- they're shit hot on cybersecurity is in two thousand and seven they you know suffered a Got hacked. They they suffered an incident from an unknown actor. Um, 
Anyway, um, so but anyway. so okay. So and, so, this, so this is so this is interesting, right? So um, we don't, as like ordinary citizens, we, we don't really know much about cybersecurity in general, but we, we know it's kind mm. of important. And what the UK government has done since about 2012, and basically since the National Cybersecurity Centre, which I, do you know what the National Cybersecurity Centre is? It was mentioned in Cameron's memoirs, and I guess it's what's in place to stop the NHS from getting hacked by Iran or other actors. Yeah, so sort of. So, so basically, the National Cybersecurity Centre. So first of all, what you have to understand is the National Cybersecurity Centre is really just GCHQ wearing a nice, friendly glove puppet. Uh, mm-hmm. They are uh, they are like act, they are actually really just a sub organisation within GCHQ. But instead of the part of GCHQ which sits very quietly and doesn't talk about what it does and. You know, maybe there's some stuff that was revealed and some stuff that got leaked, in, and let's not talk about that because I don't want to be like taken away in the night. Um, uh, <laughs> the National Cybersecurity Centre basically exists to kind of be the front end of that kind of thing. So basically, the, the realization is a, a National Cybersecurity Strategy that was developed in 2012 or so and so forth basically went. It's all very well for you know us to, government or, or specific government organisations to be very good at not getting hacked. But that's useless if, say, the NHS or just random bits of infrastructure are going to get hacked. And actually, and also companies, right? So if, if we, we, we live in a society, as it were, where private companies obviously also exist, have control over critical infrastructure or might have influence over stuff, and it's important for them to have uh, good cybersecurity because actually it has implications for national security and all these kind of things together... But, but we don't necessarily want to be in a position when we're just running their cybersecurity. So how are we meant to do this? And so basically what the National Cybersecurity do are like, um, they, they exist to advise and um, give a consultation advice. And they, they do stuff which obviously, I, I, you know, I don't know all the details because they're not necessarily completely public about all what they do. But like, so when Labour had their, the, the attack that happened on them recently, uh, they got some advice from the National Cybersecurity Centre. So basically what they do is to kind of um, exist as a way of inserting cybersecurity expertise into kind of public and private organisations that are going to need it because it's useful for, like, um, for, for the general security of the country. So, so the term Labour's manifesto are called to re- review the role and remit of the NCSC to determine whether it should be given powers as an auditing body. Uh, with the ability to issue warnings and designate risks. So at the moment, they don't really do that. And the main thing they kind of have is a bully pulpit. You know, um, they did something quite recently where basically they put on their website the, a list of major phone manufacturers and how long, if you bought a phone from them, how long it would be until you stop getting updates. So if you get only six months of updates when you buy a phone, then that's going to be pretty insecure because after six months, it's just not going to be supported. And if someone finds a crack or whatever for your phone, then, you know, goodbye. So it's pretty good for that to be pretty long. And they couldn't do anything about that. But what they could do is just put on the website with, you know, the big government branding at the top. These are the list. These are like how good, how long these manufacturers last. And, you know, that did cause some manufacturers to give longer support because it turns out, so the kind of the bully pulpit of a, platform is quite useful but everyone uh, stays on windows xp forever <laughs> well i mean it would be good if the, if you know we should stop using windows xp that, that would be good uh, um i mean in general we, we kind of have this problem in this country that uh our, we have this uh, we basically our, our, our ability to deploy it is terrible like it's the legendary legendarily like horrendous nature of like government it projects Especially like defence government ID products, I guess, but like all government ID products just you know, always go over budget, always massively 
massive money things. It never goes well. And this isn't entirely true, actually. There have been some real big successes, but, you know, like, I think that's definitely the reputation that they have. So some countries, like we mentioned Estonia before, who, who have really taken this business seriously in the last 12 years, mass, put massive kind of investment and stuff into it. Um, what, what's kind of interesting, I, I think, is... Uh, so, so the national cybersecurity is pretty interesting. Uh, probably the kind of thing we ought to have, but I think it's interesting thinking about it from a left-wing or a socialist perspective. You know, the, the context it currently exists in is sort of a protecting the economic and... Uh, otherwise, security, the UK and stuff, and maybe we think sure. these things. Are, we probably think these things are good, but like the, to, to, you know, to, to use a very social review sort of phrase, like right here, it exists in a capitalist realist mindset where the only world it kind of exists in is the, those measures of value or whatever. <laughs> but I, I think it would be interesting to think about, and actually, this is true of cybersecurity in general, right? Where often cybersecurity is something that organisations do, often companies. And it's often talking about risks in terms of their costs and all of this kind of stuff, and everything has a, a monetary value. And that is kind of, you know, you 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 say, well, this security is good enough because it can't be broken because of the costs it would have to do it, and everything's done in an economical point of view. And that that perspective almost suffuses large parts of the discipline, which is something I find really interesting. Actually, it's something I'm maybe at the beginning of my PhD, I'm not sure which research direction I'm going to go in, but I find some of the ways in which the underlying ideologies shape how the discipline is thought of really, really very interesting um, and how it shapes particular technological areas. Um, mm. So, Well, I know, personally know that, um, that it's being approached from such a huge angle actually largely as a result of GDPR. Um, so if you look at kind of all the security breaches and data breaches and stuff like that, yeah. that's the main angle they're looking at it just because you, you are liable for so much money if you, right. as a company, end up uh, having a data breach. And I, I can imagine that's probably a huge focus of the National yeah. Security Council, uh, basically uh, advising a lot of those sorts of firms. Yeah, so that does help. But of course, the interesting thing is that GDPR is not about security. It's about privacy. It's not about security, but it's about something that um, it's it's a prompt um, that because Absol as a result of that. Yeah, absolutely. But like, um, you know, privacy is distinct from security, although they're overlapping and they're, the study of them happened in different ways. Uh, but like, that's not necessarily clear from an outside point of view, but they're kind of slightly different disciplines. Um, but yeah, I mean, clearly that, and the GDPR right, is a great example of a big stick that then causes companies to change their behaviour. And that's, I, I think, the problem of how you get people to do that. It's a big problem, and it's kind of hard to do, right? Um, when we think about, and when we think about investing money into the NHS, right, uh, when people want to invest money into the NHS, what they want is extra nurses, extra doctors, extra beds. I want more GP appointments. The things that people mm. say day to day. And obviously, these things are super important, right? But, um, like... <laughs> There's nothing sexy about the NHS's IT systems need to be not terrible, but the, in many ways they do need mm. to be not terrible. Like you have mm. to, investment also means those things, but it can't be stuff that just seems big and it, you don't want to be stuff that sounds big and flashy. It's easy to announce a big IT budget, then they just get scrolled down the pan because it's not used for anything effective, right? But I think there are ways in which we could really improve stuff in the NHS. I saw a wonderful talk the other day about a research team who have worked out a way of basically uh, live editing uh, MRI and CT scan images, which are 3D images, uh, to add, using machine learning software, things which appear as brain tumours or to remove brain tumours uh, or other tumours from a scan. So if, and then they, 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 they did a proof of concept where they basically, if they can connect a device to the network, 
the, the internal security of hospitals is often not very good. Basically, they can live go, there's a scan being done, and we're going to now get that patient misdiagnosed. Either they have cancer when they, the doctor says they have cancer when they don't, or the other way around. Um, and that was really terrifying for me, actually. I mean, this is very, you know, speculative stuff, but it is something that people are active, is actively possible with technology that you can download right now. If you look at things like MPs stepping down kind of at key points because they had to go get cancer treatment, you almost just think uh, in these kind of times sort of with, with things that close, be it Russia or anyone else, could actually just come in and uh, hack one crucial MP, give them the wrong results for their scan, and then who knows? History turns uh, on what another of those Eric Joyce moments. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, precisely so, right? So, like, um, I, I mean, uh, actually, the uh, team who were doing this research were working out of Israel, who obviously have a very, very, very close parliament, right? There's somewhere where, like, one, one or two politicians having a health scout at the wrong time could, you know... Changes uh, the balance of power quite significantly, r- doesn't right, it? Right, exactly. So, uh, and this is true... You could say the same about our parliament until now. No, absolutely, and and these are some of these, and you can you can go down these rabbit holes. And actually, in the day to day, which is one thing the NCSC are kind of a pain to say, it's not the big ticket flashy stuff. It's encouraging people to have, teaching people about what effective passwords and password management is. You know, they've got like a list of three or four. They do a thing where they basically go, here are the three or four big things that basically cause most breaches. And they're very simple things that people should just do. So it's mm. easy to sort of worry about this big long tail stuff. And I think it does show you why you have to be kind of imaginative about how bad uh, cyber stuff, what, what like a bad cyber thing could be. But actually, most of the time, you know, it, 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 it's little things that cause stuff rather than kind of ooh, flashy yeah. big research hack stuff. Uh, I think I think one of the reasons that uh, we do need to be more imaginative is because when we're discussing cybersecurity, cybersecurity is different from like traditional military security in that cybersecurity relates to every single person in the country in a very personal, well, devolved way, in a way which military security has not, does not. And well, I mean, all, unless except, you're living it, in a police state. Well, except no, I mean, does it? Because uh, actually, uh, I mean, so this is really interesting, right? And again, it's what, what I mean where there's a really big display. I think you're kind of right. But, you know, we saw, we have just had, as we were recording this a few days ago, the London Bridge attacks, which yeah. are clearly an example of the way in which security pertains to the everyday, well, yeah, okay. kind of, to a degree. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, but so, what, what, I mean, uh, what I mean is that those attacks don't happen every day, whereas you, you interact with uh, your passwords and your um, online profiles yeah, uh, yes, ab- ab- every day. Yes, absolutely so. And I think, um, and, and you might not think you're important, but you might be in ways that you don't quite understand. You know, I think yeah. it, it, it creates a big, a big surface. To, yeah, it's a big deal. And I think almost there's not loads of stuff in either the Tory or the, um, I mean, the Tories want to create a new national cyber crime force. And they want to invest more in cybersecurity and set up the UK's first space command. I, I'm not sure that's relevant. Yeah. But, Space Force of oh, terrorism. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. The Tories have come out for Space Warriors, which I assume is going to be like a Thunderbird-style space station. No. Um, oh, actually, Labour have a pretty good paragraph on cybersecurity in their manifesto, which actually, in many ways, I think touches on things about much of this stuff. But I don't think it's kind of at the centre of what we think about. And I think also if we want a more progressive, less authority-led state which, which often in social review we take this perspective right um or, or but, but we i mean cyber security is still going to be relevant 
And the reality is that big state actors like Russia, like China, but actually like lots of states, and yes, like the US and, you know, the UK, like this is stuff is happening kind of all the time. And it's not just state actors, it's, you know, criminal organisations and lots of stuff all the time, right? I, I, this is this is sort of constantly going on and pretty much is, is not going to stop being the case. Indeed, I think it's interesting that, you know, the Labour have this plan to um, nationalise broad, the broadband services, which is great. But of course, mm. I mean, you're then directly in a way which is sort of now slightly hands off because BT are making those decisions, but we'd be taking big chunks of national infrastructure relating to networking and been put, bringing that into government hands. So... Does that have any security implications? Do we need to be thinking differently how we do stuff? Does it mean we get more control over stuff? You've got mm. questions about like which companies, and especially if those countries are not based in the UK, do we allow to install particular infrastructure? You know, these are these are I think, really big questions, and I think often which possibly we should get onto. Although I know time's getting on, you know, sometimes big questions about security and defence are like big right wing stuff, but like I'm not interested in those sort of you know, fist-pumping military necessary ways of thinking. But I do think they're relevant, and I think they're to, like, people's lives in lots of different ways, and still from a left-way perspective. My question was just going to be, um, uh, to what to what extent do you feel that a left government, uh, a social review-esque government, perhaps, um, should be prioritising um, uh, the value of privacy over the value of national security? I mean, clearly, everyone wants to say, oh, we'll find a middle-of-the-road approach, right? Everyone, mm-hmm. I think if you ask most people, what they would say is, oh, we should find a balance between the two. I think the question is that everyone has a different idea about what that balance should be. It's yes. made harder by the fact that, broadly, the amount that our government, that all, like, all organisations surveil us is not something that necessarily they're particularly keen to talk about. So it's not. it's hard to have a public... You know, I, I saw... Uh, a conversation. Oddly, I got uh, I had an advert on Facebook for uh, possibly because of the stuff I look up for my like PhD. Uh, it was advertising jobs working for a <clears throat> government organisation that is based that has bases in lots of places, but on this case Manchester. And I had to look at the Facebook comments below it, and uh, quite a lot of comments, interestingly, about oh well, you didn't keep us safe from Manchester bombings, did you? So stop advertising here. I thought that was quite interesting. But a bunch mm. of people argue about whether the, someone was talking about the Snowden revelation. And someone was like, well, they, no, these things you're saying can't be true because of GPDR. The government could never spy on us. I mean, they absolutely can. In there. <laughs> That's beautiful no, naivety. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, they were like, those these, these things would be illegal. The government can't be doing them. And you're like, well, <laughs> I hear you, buddy, but I've got some bad news for you. But I, I think... It, well, there's a joy in that um, the ECJ ruled that the regulatory investigatory, the, the Snoopers yeah, Charter yeah. basically ruled that the government shouldn't collect those. So really, actually, now that we're leaving the EU, one of the few kind of main obstacles to the government legally being able to collect most of that data is going to yeah, go. Uh, so it's so, um, yet another I, reason. I tend to think that, actually, the question about questions of privacy, both from each other, from organisations, I mean, I absolutely think privacy from organisations, you know, I don't want them... I don't want big corporations to have all my data. I don't want them to use privatising stuff. It's kind of too mm. late already. We've already put it in, but fuck them. I don't really think government should be able to do that mainly. But I think actually the one of the one of the interesting things about GPDR is not just that it prevents the extra production. It tries wait, to make it more. Wait, trans- so you don't you don't think 
you don't think government should be able to fuck them, or you don't think government should be. No, able no, to I don't. I don't think government should necessarily be able. To, I, 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 don't, I don't. I don't. I don't think government should violate privacy either necessarily, right? But buddy, they wouldn't okay, even let me. Okay. But, but my point. My point is act, act, actually the question about like mm-hmm. it, it, the question as to exactly what the state should be able to like surveil you on is kind of a. Firstly, I think there's, an interesting, there's some interesting arguments in the literature that say the obsession with kind of privacy in an abstract sense is quite a, you know, when we talk about the rights of privacy and human rights and a uh, human right to privacy in these big abstract senses, we're ignoring the fact yes. that actually it's specific communities and specific people that get surveilled. It's people like um, uh, people who have migrated here or... Mm-hmm lots or other groups which as leftists we want to protect and these are the groups most at risk when we talk about abstract rights to privacy if your name is colin you're 34 and you work in it in the home counties i don't and you make you make a decent sum and you live in a house that you own i don't personally care lots about your abstract right to privacy although i think it's probably important and if we're going to protect other people we should protect yours but i think the thing is that actually we should talk more about who gets right to privacy, who gets access to the secure communication. And I think these things are things that the left should talk about, but I think something which we're bad at talking about. I do think that basically you have to almost get, work out, have a conversation, an open conversation as a society to work out what the accommodation is. The thing about Snoopers chart and all of these kind of things is that often the governments, governments pass these things not really explaining in any clear depth what they do. They're often they broad sweeping powers. And there's no sense in which people give their conscious consent for these things, even though they're kind of maybe normally there. Of course, people will often always say, well, I just want to, I want the government to keep me safe and I'll do whatever for that. And I think that's kind of the problem, right? But you, you the wider population says, oh, we want the government to do stuff that will keep us safe. And what you do is you give the government actually specific powers to persecute particular groups in society. Um, that is pretty much how this goes. So that's, and that's kind of why I, I'm opposed to them getting that. But I, I just don't, I don't even think we're at the beginning of having a good conversation about it. I think broadly, most the average person in the street would be like, yeah, I'm okay with government investigating stuff if it means that the bad guys don't win. We're not talking about who the government defines as bad guys in the first place. You know, if, if uh, look at the way in which this isn't cybersecurity, but look at the way in which the police and other organizations have infiltrated like left-wing protest groups and stuff like that in the past in all the all of the scandals that have happened there and these intersect i think with privacy and the right to a private life away from observation by the state as well i think these are really pressing concerns that we we know i think instinctively on the left we're opposed to but we're actually very bad at talking about and bad at making the argument that they should be i think i think we have rejected the legacy and the settlement of new labor in so many ways in the current labor party but we haven't really come to terms with the fact that so much of what they tried to, to kind of erect around the security state we're not even close to touching i think sometimes some of the stuff we do in the manifesto you can see we touch it but you know it's kind of indicative right? we're just saying oh we might give the national cyber security set to auditing powers well that's pretty good but i mean that's both doesn't give many teeth but also doesn't really ask questions about like what should any of these things be for in the first place and and the Okay, fine. Definitely, people on the radical left have big opinions about this stuff. But actually, if, if you know, even on the soft left, I think we should be clearly having strong opinions about whether or not these things are good. I think so they they're not often articulated. Does that kind of answer your question? It does, yeah. And and I just also wanted to say that I think it is a really immediately pressing issue because we're facing uh, the return of a government who 
um, very fragrantly and and clearly is willing to break norms and perhaps laws as well. Um, And it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that if if we had to see a majority conservative government returned next week, um, led by Boris Johnson, Uh... boo indeed, we we do boo that. But it's not entirely outside the realm of possibility that you know, in investigations into left-wing groups and even people who are not really on the left and the climate groups and that kind of thing uh, is is going to ramp up whether whether yes. overtly or subtly. Uh, I, I, I think I think prob- I think almost certainly already has. Um, yeah, you you will probably see- so. I mean, some of the parts of the security state have realised that maybe right-wing nationalism is currently a problem, and those things are yes. currently criticised. I hope that that continues because you know i would like to get the fucking nazis out of anything that i can and throw them into the you know the dust uh Mm -hmm. but i you know you you start to see it in in the us where uh, antifa or whatever has been framed as somehow a coherent organization which is a big security threat and that's been used to you know i I think despite um, it having no central organization i believe no sure Um, i I mean the realistic thing is if Boris Johnson gets a majority in a week's time, then um, you will see, uh, I, I think, renewed protests, efforts, and all this kind of stuff in the country. As mm. and, uh, and hopefully other stru- we need to build other structures to help people survive, get through what will be the next five years. But you will see these things. And yeah, I think it is true that all of these things will try to be interfered with. Um, I, and you've got to can't start worrying about it before is a problem. So probably mm. already no. people should be worrying listening about it. I'm, I'm, I'm actually probably, and probably people are, right? I mean, no, no, nobody, nobody listening to the Social Review podcast is seriously someone who's <laughs> probably planning radical radical protests against the government. And if you are, you know, good on you. That that, that, that sounds great. But, like, uh, I, I don't know. It's it's like... We have a very broad and diverse listenership. No, we... we, we Apparently, we, 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 maybe. <laughs> allegedly, yeah. But I, I don't know. I... I sorry if I sound a little hopeless, but I, I just I think these things are important. I don't. I think these things are hard. I don't even think we're at the beginning of having the right conversations about them to even talk about them properly, and it might be too late. It is sometimes what I worry about, um, and because yeah. as you sort of said at the beginning, some of this stuff gets very technical very fast. You know, one of the things about cryptography, which is an area I'm particularly interested in, right? I'm not going to talk in any detail about it because it's just insanely technical, quite mathematical, and something that basically the average person shouldn't care about. And it actually is kind of important. It does underlie how we do secure communications. And um, it, you end up with a scenario where this technology, which basically lets people communicate securely, isn't something that can be understood reasonably, and therefore people can't have conversations about it with any meaningful stuff. I think it's a problem in a lot of technological areas, right? Because actually, if we were to get into the technological nitty-gritty, it gets mm. quite complicated. But people, unlike other areas, you know, health is massively complicated. I don't understand anything about medicine. But I can kind of maybe understand bits about policy stuff to, like, understand how you might make decisions about it. But I think sure, sometimes sure. about, like, technical stuff and especially, like, technical security, people just sort of switch off and they go, oh, I don't know about it. But I think we should be in finding ways to make it comprehensible to people. I mean, the, the uh, place I do my... Uh, PhD is called the Center for Cybersecurity for the Everyday because actually that is a thing kind of that's really interesting, right? It's not cybersecurity in the sense of like, oh, big stuff, you know, uh, hacking, mainframe, wizard, hoodie shit. It's the cybersecurity <laughs> of 
and, and privacy all of these things that people encounter in their everyday lives um, well, yeah but do, do you think one of the reasons that it's hard for people to to fathom it and understand cybersecurity on the same level as health for example is because i'm going to explain this really badly but because health is something which is um natural to us and to the world whereas cybersecurity and the entire digital realm is something that we created uh, I, I think that's really interesting i i, I... Yeah, I think you might it's be something there. It's, I mean, it's, I mean, perhaps, it's perhaps a counterintuitive suggestion because surely, if we are going to create something, then we should perhaps understand it better than something which. No, no, it's very easy to create things you don't understand, and I think absolutely in well, most yeah, of the, uh, the, uh, the EU. The EU. You said the EU. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the, inter- the internet is a great example of a thing that we use every day that literally most people don't have a clue how it works. Um, yes. On like a number of levels, um, I think you're right, and I think one of the interesting things, some of the some of the research that some of the uh, academics that I work with here uh, do is about some of the stuff about making stuff comprehensible. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, I was at a, sort of a, a, a few day kind of intensive seminar thing that I did the other day. We had, we had some bits where we were playing with Lego models uh, and that sounds really trivial, but it was like using right. kind of Lego models to sort of explain and express some of the kind of quite complicated ideas we talked about to break them down and help process some of the things like that. And that uh, the sounds stupid, right? It sounds what's my plan me. It sounds really trivial, right? But like, actually, uh, it, it's it's and it was good for consolidating those understandings and or linking it through. Uh, and I think it's things like that. And it's and and the thing is, of course, that making technology comprehensible is itself a discipline that has to be understood and studied and refined. Um, you, it, and often there is this barrier between a technical world that doesn't understand how to talk to people who are not technical and people who are not technical who have deep opinions about stuff but can't interface with the technical users in the language that they understand and you almost have this you have different worlds or different or multiple different worlds that that can't interact um uh and i think you're right it's because often there's stuff that we don't have an intuition for now i mean in fairness intuition can often be wrong this is massively true in health right where people instinctively feel things and it's instinctive things are wrong and health and goodness is the thing that health communicators really struggle with right it's like no you think that that would be good but actually it's not the truth so i think it's true in general but i think it's more prevalent maybe in stuff where as you say people just don't have any day-to-day experience uh, i think when people want to try to understand something they they often try to relate it to something that they are familiar with or relate it through a metaphor that they already know and and if it, people don't have that, uh, then it becomes really challenging. And of course, the, the trouble sometimes, of course, is you introduce a metaphor, but that metaphor isn't quite accurate, uh, and then people get confused because they're they're lost in the symbol, but not the thing that it's symbolising, whatever. Um, so it's big, it's big and hard, and I don't understand how to do it. Um, Hang on, I, I, Let, I, let's not take that out of context. <laughs> 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 things that you can say on the social review podcast and also also um, while having sex <laughs> uh hello 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 we're back with uh sean as lines has gone off to her lectures hello sean hello do i get to plug my twitter now as well yeah go for it uh i am at sean d smith on twitter please follow me i'd really like it if more people followed me <laughs> uh, the eternal, uh, the eternal are... wish. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing so much at that. <laughs> we need more self confidence. Okay, right. Need anyway, more with, uh, I, I really like. Yeah, carry on. 
so we're doing uh, a quick fire uh, round on standing or cancelling uh, different uh, foreign policies in, in Labour's manifesto on a new internationalism. We've talked a lot about cybersecurity and defence just now, uh, and now uh, foreign policy stuff. So we're just going to go through the list, super quick fire. Do we stand or do we cancel? Because that is the kind of political analysis you get on the Social Review podcast. Incredibly basic from... Deep, hard-hitting, fast... <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Number one, well, look. introduce a War Powers Act to ensure that no Prime Minister can bypass Parliament to commit conventional military action. Unlike the Conservatives, we will implement every single recommendation of the Chilcot Inquiry. Stand or cancel? There were two parts to that, really. I stand. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna stand implementing every single recommendation of the Chilcot Inquiry, and I feel like this is probably one of the recommendations of it, but... I'm going to cancel. I'm going to cancel it needing mm. to be policy because I don't think it actually needs to be policy because I'm, you know, different. Um, <laughs> no, um, I'm going to say <laughs> that I, I stand the principle of it being there, um, but actually, I don't think we actually really need it as policy because I don't think any prime minister is ever going to bypass parliament again after Iraq, uh, and I think it's been established. So I think it's a nice safeguard. Good to have it there because after all, Boris Johnson did not really give the best example of what happens when you have unwritten constitution. Uh, so go on then, fine. I'll stand. I'll stand it, but I'll just be different about it. All right. So I'm not going to be different. I I just stand it. I stand both parts of it. Simple as. Uh, second policy: conduct an audit of the impact of Britain's colonial legacy to understand our contribution to the dynamics of violence and insecurity across regions previously under British colonial rule. I 100% stand this. I think it's very important. I think much of the electorate will question why it needs to be important in the way that. Uh, majority white electorates tend to do when it comes to um, policies geared towards fixing racial discrimination, but I think it is necessary. I think it's worthwhile. I don't see why not. We have no choice but to stand. Absolutely 110% stand. This is easy. They've really led with the ones that have not made for great hard hitting. Come on, come on, let's let's see what, we can, what else we can yeah. find. Well, I mean, this one, this next one is also pretty, like, Fine. Invest an additional four hundred million in our diplomatic capacity to secure Britain's role as a country that promotes peace. Blah 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 blah. I mean, like, sure, fine. Diplomacy yes, I'm going to stand this. Like, I'm going to stand this because it overturns one of the biggest damages of David Miliband's legacy as Foreign Secretary, which was depleting the capacity of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He got rid of the library, which is one thing that I think mm. has been brought back by the Conservatives, and got rid of language learning. Um, I presume there was other stuff that was cut as part of that as time in there, because, I don't know, I imagine they had to make cuts uh, just before they went out. But either way, they got rid of a load of mm. stuff. So this, I think, is also a good thing, because it's good for Britain to have diplomatic capacity. This is one of those really boring, wonky topics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is we we stand pretty simple. Can we get on to some, some some hard hitting, some meaty ones? Yeah, come I mean, on, we've got to fight. We've got to fight. We've we've got to cancel at some point. I can't believe it. The Social Review stands the Labour manifesto. Who could have ever seen this one? <laughs> <laughs> where's Where's James? We need a Lib Dem voice here. <laughs> yeah, no, we do need it at this um, point. <laughs> right, effective diplomacy, effective diplomacy. What's that 400, 400 see, million quid going on? <laughs> well, so it's going on establishing a judge-led inquiry into our country's alleged complicity and rendering oh, torture. Ed Miliband classic. Boards. Yeah! Um, oh, it's like the big like, Ed never I, went I, away. <laughs> he's, he's, he's still there. I mean, like, I think, again, all well, these are kind of like, yeah, fine, good. Like, I, I stand, you know, issuing a formal apology... 
um, to Jalian Wallabar. Wallabar. We're okay. gonna need we're gonna need Wikipedia up for this one. I know what Amritsa was, but I don't know what I've never heard of Jalian Wallabar. Maybe this is this is part of yeah. the uh, this is part of the lack of education on our colonial uh, on our colonial legacy. I knew about Amritsa, but not Jalian Wallabar. So I'm pro that one. I'm gonna stand West Papua. Gotta gotta uh-huh. gotta serve it up for West Papua and the rights of the people of the Western Sahara. However, mm-hmm. I'm not going to stand the policy of allowing the people of the Chagos Islands and their descendants the right to return to the lands from which they should never have been removed. Because Why is that? I'm going to get cancelled. Um, <laughs> no, okay. So there's one practical reason. One, I think they've done weapons testing there, so I think it's possibly okay. really deeply impractical on just like a health level for them to return. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong on that. The other one is I know that one of them is definitely a U.S. Army base, and I feel like right. I feel like so. I'm going to I'm going to approach this from a different a different way. I, I'm not going to stand this because I think it might be putting up a promise that we're not going to be able to deliver because. Sure. Frankly, I think the second we try and remove the US from that army base, we're probably going to get a, right, you and what army response, because I think that one's yeah, really key yeah. to them. Um, so it's in the, it's like the only one they've got in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and they don't want to get rid of it. It's basically the main reason why. And I think basically everyone across the aisle, like Tory MPs, Labour MPs, they kind of look at it and go, wow, it was a really shitty thing that we did this, but there's not really much we can mm. do about it now because the Americans are never going to give it up. So what I think we should do is instead give them absolutely shitloads of compensation just because it's possibly a bit impractical to ever allow them to go back. Sure, so, so yeah, I'm going to I'm going to cancel this policy and possibly get cancelled in turn myself. <laughs> Uh, here's 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 some here's some perhaps meaty ones. So, do we stand immediately suspending the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia? On a, a pretty basic level, as someone who is is not an expert in the affairs of the Middle East, although to be fair, we've seen quite how much uh, success the geniuses who claim to be experts on the Middle East have done in the last twenty years. Um, it's it's very clear that the Saudi regime is you know having journalists who they don't like hacked to death with bone sores and committing war crimes in the Yemen. Uh, so I think we should probably not be arming them. Instinctively, mm. I hate Saudi Arabia. Uh, instinctively, I hate the violation of human rights of Palestinian civilians. So I'm going to stand the immediate suspension. And if it has horrible unforeseen consequences, well, we can always think about that after. The, se- the second the second one. Uh, reform the international rules based on justice and accountability for breaches. Yes, yes. For breaches of human rights uh, and in international law. I think that's really important. I think something which um, we've been discussing a lot in, um, in lectures and things lately is how uh, there are no shortage of international bodies, supranational bodies, transnational bodies all those words effectively mean the same thing, um, to uh, bind uh, people to international law, countries to international law, but so rarely do they actually prove to be effective. And I really think that if a government is going to propose strengthening those institutions and actually committing themselves to them as a point of principle, then that is a really good thing. I think we need to be more closely connected um, in this new internationalism, as they say, um, and I hope that could be a rallying point for all people on the progressive left i'm going to stand this policy uh i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to give critical support for standing this policy i th- i would have liked it if mm-hmm. we could have been more so uh, we, we could have been more explicit on this one so for example saying that uh we'd reform the un um specifically mm-hmm. by making it so that the other members of the un all of them can overrule the un security council 
um, mm. uh, Vito. Um, that's one thing I forget the name for it, but that would have been something that would have been a nice detail to put in. Um, I understand why they didn't necessarily put it in, but that would be one great thing that they could put in as a detail. About well, how, well, how well, well, that is mentioned this. later on. It says we will build support for UN reform, including assessing and developing democratization initiatives and improving the engagement of the General Assembly in decision making to ensure its institutes, institutions are more effective oh. in achieving peace. Yes, so I just need to look wish. over on the next page. Brilliant. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've definitely read this before. Um, uh, <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to move on to defence and security because those relate to foreign policy and will perhaps evoke some media, so, so, some media. Oh, wait, although there is get, one good one on the, um, the human rights for the... for. Um, oh, wait, is that just in Sri Lanka? Ah, that's just in Sri Lanka. Anyway, I was going to say, so there was one policy which I think we have to stand under the protection of human rights of uh, Sri Lanka's minority Tamil and Muslim populations, but I think we're mm. getting cancelled the Labour as the Labour Party um, because uh, this is one thing that's responsible for the, uh, what is it, the name, the uh, Hindu Council? The UK General Hindu Council, they're really campaigning I for the Tories. so, yes. Yeah, so we're being cancelled, so we have to stand. Even though it's stand. possibly going to lose us the election, but we have to stand. <laughs> that probably um, isn't going to be the one thing that loses so, the election. <laughs> <laughs> so the manifesto notes that trained army personnel has been cut from 102,000 to just over 74,000 by the Conservative government since 2010. Um, so okay, so this is a really interesting debate, and this is kind of something which taps into a lot of what like people uh, adjacent to uh, the social review and within the social review think a lot about which is authoritarianism um and one of our writers and podcasters kieran has, has written quite extensively about this and how labor labor has always had an authoritarian streak more than a streak one would argue um and this really came home at the last election when it was like championing um championing uh police funding and rallying against police cuts and i think this is one of those really tricky issues of electoralism versus principles because as far as i can see it's really electorally unpopular to argue for cutting the military and cutting for the police which is why the conservatives have never made that argument not once and they just do it on the sly i mean obviously the police cutting the police is more of a hot button electoral issue and it's not quite to the same extent right now i don't think but it certainly was in the 2017 election um but cutting the number of uh, armed forces personnel has has not factored into the political debate whatsoever in the last couple of years i, I mean feel free for either of you to correct me on that but i i don't think that it has um mm. so i feel like labor labor and committing to strengthening the armed forces and strengthening the police is something which you wouldn't necessarily expect them to do if you have a kind of like a part if you have a perception built up of corbyn and the labor party in your head from a kind of a passing interest in the in the news um but it is something which they are firmly committed to be doing and there are there are parts of the left which will be questioning whether it's wise in principle to, to be committing to such like strengthening of military power and authoritarianism basically what do you guys think about that sean you go first um so i i was actually going to talk about something slightly different there's a line in here which i okay i, I quite like um it says labor will increase funding for un peacekeeping operations to 100 million pounds um yep. which is something i'd really like to see uh, this is going to get me cancelled by the way um okay. do it do but, it but but, but i am in favor of 
Britain providing a lot more money to the UN peacekeeping forces because we've seen in the 1990s how in places like Rwanda and Bosnia and Kosovo uh, that UN peacekeeping forces you know, have not been effective and I think that um, certainly in, in Bosnia and Kosovo those are examples of, of positive foreign intervention and I'd, I would like to see us move towards a, a foreign policy doctrine where uh, if we do have to intervene militarily abroad as a last resort it should be more examples like that rather than in Iraq mm-hmm. where's the bit that's going to get you cancelled <laughs> 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 this feels a little bit like kind of oh I'm just going to get cancelled for being so perfect and so, so <laughs> like, well I'm sure, like, I'm sure some, 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 some will cancel you for that I'm going to stan all of this stuff uh, electorally uh, it's all really important it's all really useful stuff that um, you know can help change perceptions of the Labour Party I'm going to just cancel it policy wise you know we really don't need an argument We don't, uh, not an argument we really don't need a really that big of an army in this day and age i think we probably need i mean when they say stuff like trained army personnel have been cut from 102,000 to just over 74,000 um one thing i kind of want to know that is that just the army or are they are they are they using that as a misnomer for the armed forces because i don't necessarily know that we need an army that's 74,000 big um i in terms of where well it says trained army personnel Mm, i'm wondering if they're including the navy within that yeah or the end of the RAF. I don't know. Either yeah. way, yeah, I imagine Labour's probably going to get cancelled if that ever gets clarified the wrong way. I think that there, uh, you know, I think this is all really useful stuff electorally, but policy-wise, you know, I just um really, well, I mean, ultimately, is Corbyn ever going to use the army? No, not really. So it's all kind of, I yeah. think, kind of throwing good money after bad, uh, policy-wise, because it's spending a lot more money on something we're frankly never going to use as a Labour government uh, under Corbyn. So I'm going to cancel it. I uh, maybe maybe instead of investing that money into rearming the arm for refilling the armed forces, uh, we need to be investing that money into cybersecurity, tying this episode back to its yes, origins. throwback. Um, I mean, we 100 percent do arm lines. <laughs> <laughs> we 100% do like it is so much more sensible to be to be funding um cybersecurity operations um than trained military personnel but there we go lines isn't here so we won't be able to have as uh informed a debate about that as we would otherwise i presume we're basically just going to stand everything in the international solidarity and social justice bit given it's basically 0.7 percent upholding basic rights this all basically just looks like, yeah, you either stand this... And, and that's our political analysis. Yeah! Oh, I feel so... I feel so ready for government. Which... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. The music you've listened to as per is Sweeter Vermouth, composed by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks very much to everybody who came on and talked as well about defence and cybersecurity and foreign policy and so forth. Um, Always very interesting stuff to talk about, and I hope it was interesting to listen to. The election is obviously next week, uh, and we will be back again next week after our buffer week last week, um, where I will hopefully not have a cold that time. Um, We will all hopefully be bit less tired and we will be able to talk about the election results whatever it may be have a wonderful weekend goodbye